I would not have made it through the canyon without you, without assistance and help from my friends and from people who had been there before or people that I could lean on like you who inspired me to continue going on the trail. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, Closers, to another episode of Profitable Property Management. Today, I have Randall Henderson on the show. Randall, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> Glad to be with you here, man. You and I have had some fun adventures as of late. I want to talk through the times that we've seen each other lately. I want to hear a little bit about your background in the industry and uh, hear about where you're headed and where you're going. But let's wind the tape back. Randall, where are you from originally? So I was born in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm a huge Tar Heel fan. Um, I've got family there still and, uh, you know, spent my early years in a family of, of seven boys. So it was kind of a, kind of a Lord of the flies, you know, kill or be killed situation. So we fought for our food. We, we, uh, were the best of friends and worst of enemies, but, uh, yeah. Where did, where do you fit in the order? I'm fifth of seven. Ooh. Okay. And all of our names start with R. So you, would you Indulge like to run me. down? I Indulge know I have me. to do it every time. Robert, Richard, Raymond, Ronald, Randall, Ryan, Russell. Wow. So seven boys, the seven R's as we were known. Seven R's. Yeah, we were kind of a kind of a, a force to be reckoned with in the neighborhood. Uh, we're all pretty tall, pretty big guys, and uh, had a lot of time together on the court, actually. You could, so you could field a basketball team, basically. 100%. Well, we actually did field a basketball team several times going against some uh, some colleges and universities. And uh, we beat a couple of Division Two teams just with the seven of us. That's incredible. Great. What position did you play? I played a three or a four. Um, I was a, actually a late bloomer. So I graduated high school under six feet still. And then uh, when I turned... When I turned 18, I shot up six inches and thought, man, maybe I could play somewhere. Maybe I could play basketball somewhere. So at the time, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was good enough to play anywhere on Tobacco Road or in, in the ACC or anything, but I wanted to get a good Division I education. So I, I packed up everything, had $200 to my name and an academic scholarship to BYU mm. and went out and... Um, slept on the floor for six months of one of the teammates that I had found on the first day that I landed there. Um, I went to the gym straight away and said, does anyone know any players on the team? And I was able to find one guy and I shagged balls for him for like three hours on that day. Just talked to him and we became great friends. And I asked him if I could crash on his, his sofa that night. And that is where I stayed for the next six months of my life until I made the team. Well, you better hope that's a good friend if you're on somebody's <laughs> sofa for six months. It was a great friend, man, and a great experience. Um, but, you know, the end of the story is not as great because I was a walk-on, I set the bench, had an amazing experience. Two semesters in, my scholarship is disappearing because I, I'm basically a C student at that point. I was spending, you know, 20 plus hours a week working, mm. trying to trying to make my way um, without debt. And I also uh, was playing basketball 20 to 25 hours a week. So it was just an insane schedule. Something gave way and it was the schooling. So 
So what happened from there? Did you graduate? Yeah, yeah, I had a conversation with my coach and he said, you know what? I like your work ethic, but you're too damn smart to be playing basketball for a living. You need to focus on on school. And so I, I turned my attention back to re-winning that scholarship, which I did a year later. And, uh, and then was able to come out of school without debt and a degree in mathematics. Did you have any other friends or anybody else you knew in the area? Not really. You know, that was kind of a big jump going out West, leaving Raleigh all the way to, to, you know, Salt Lake city. But, um, I w- I looked forward to it. It was, it was a big thing. I, I wanted to kind of make my own way. You can imagine with six, you know, competitors around me, it was mm-hmm. important for me to, to kind of try to make my own mark and, and get some distance and separation there. So. Wouldn't, aggress- uh, wouldn't have guessed a degree in mathematics. <laughs> Was that meant to pivot or segue into something specific? And have you did you ever use any of it? You know, I actually started out in electrical engineering and then just fell in love with the math side. Not so much on the actually applied, but more on just the theory. So I loved the the logic that was involved there. There was, you know, there was a right way to do things. And if you could determine the right path to solve a problem, you know, there's just one answer. You, you know, there's there's a lot of ways to get it wrong, but there's just one way to get it right. And that was super appealing to me. So I had no plans. In fact, initially I thought maybe I would teach math coming out of school, um, but I just felt like maybe there was something bigger waiting for me. So um, started looking at at sales. I was always good with people and, and was hired on very early in a pharmaceutical company, um, Eli Lilly out of Indianapolis. And so I started selling, selling drugs to doctors, which was a fantastic job coming out of college. Mm, so you get into pharmaceuticals. What was that? Pharmaceuticals has some assumptions about it that that doctor interaction. For sure. What was the what was the vibe like? Yeah. So I would say it was as much marketing and market share as it was sales because like you'd literally drive around for you know six or eight hours a day. You're you've got a, a territory that's pretty big. It covered you know I had Utah, Idaho, and Wyoming, but I would drive around for eight hours a day for about three minutes of FaceTime. Because the people that you're calling on are extremely busy. They have reps all day lined up to sell to them. It's big money. You know, you're spending a lot. You're trying to get their attention. So you really had to learn how to how to get that market share very, very quickly and segment your patients so that you're just able to just, you know, eat away at that market share and get in their mind that there's a new product or a different product. So I, um, I was with Eli Lilly carrying the osteoporosis line of products which was great for me because it was super nerdy and I made it a, a very like, you know, kind of a goal of mine to know a lot more than the doctors did about, mm-hmm. about bone turnover and, and, you know, fractures and what that looked like. And so my tact was to go in and just kind of share with them the most recent relevant information so that they could make the best decisions. That did very well for me in that space. So after about two years of that, I was in the top 5% of Eli Lilly selling that product. And I was rewarded with the sales training role. So I got to I got to do that for a little while. And that just suited me really well. It was a great marriage of kind of the the nerdiness, the, you know, that geeking out about a product, and then also kind of the teaching side, which I loved and the coaching side. So funny story about that. And interrupt me at any time. Um, I was asked to join a new team. So I did well as a sales trainer. So they they brought 500 of us into to Indianapolis and they said, hey, we're launching a new product. 
We're supposed to get our FDA approval in a couple of days, so we can't even tell you what the product is. But you know, we're gonna bring you all in here. We're gonna have a private concert with Counting Crows, which in 2006 was like amazing, right? Private concert for 500 of us reps. Still don't know what the product is. The next day we get into a big auditorium. There's a curtain. It finally opens up and I see the word Cialis. And I'm like, what the hell is Cialis? I don't know what this is. Um, I'm trying to read as to whether or not you mm -hmm. you know what it is, but it, <laughs> I found out very quickly it was a competitor to Viagra. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I know nothing about this class. Like I don't know, I don't know these doctors. I'm gonna have to call on urologists and others now. So it was a different rotation, it was a different territory, and I was a bit terrified. So like I geeked out, I nerded out, and I learned everything there, there was possible to know about erectile dysfunction, <laughs> which as you might imagine, you know, me at 25, I'm like, I'm gonna go and educate these doctors. Well, they don't wanna talk about erectile dysfunction. Mm, I mean, the 25 year old? 100%, yeah, and they, they don't, it, they considered it a real waste of their time because like no patients are scheduling, you know, visits to a doctor's office for just that. It's mm -hmm. almost always like what they call a hand on the door conversation, mm -hmm. which is like, oh doc, by the way, can I get a sample <laughs> of that get... Cialis that I saw the commercial on <laughs> with the people in the bathtub? I'm like, so that was a complete failure for the first quarter. I, my numbers were bottom 5%, which, was a, a new thing for me. I, I was really struggling with it. So I thought, man, I've gotta, I've gotta change something. I can't, I can't continue to do this. And so I did notice because they kit you out in like everything branded Cialis. I mean, it's just like, you know, ridiculous. I mean, I'm getting approached in parking lots, you know, for samples all the time. Wow. At least once a day. Wow. Right. And and then like all of the nurses and the staff, they know what Cialis is. Mm. So they're like, every time there was like a snicker and a laugh. And, and so I saw that and I'm like, you know what? Maybe, maybe that's my end. Maybe I can embrace the the comedy of this, of this drug. So I studied like every available joke that I could oh find on the internet. And wow. I learned hundreds wow, of wow, erectile wow. dysfunction jokes. Wow. And then, you know, on my two week rotation, I would go in and just, I would get up on stage basically and deliver like a series <laughs> stand of, up. of stand up. Oh my goodness. And guess what happened? Numbers went up. Numbers went up. So within six months, I'm in top 5% of the, of the country. They bring us out for an annual event. They put me on stage and they say, what is the secret to your success? <laughs> and I told like six jokes. I basically did a stand up session about erectile dysfunction, so. Wow, that is a hard pivot, no pun intended. I do wanna ask about if it's changed <laughs> awesome. your perception of the medical community having that kind of proximity. 100%. I worked as a clinical assistant in the OR and getting to see physicians up close, seeing the humanity, we're all not that different, put on your pants one, one leg at a time. It gave me a slightly different view. How did that, that interaction with the medical community, specifically in the sense that you understood the use case and the problem better than they did in certain ways, how did that kind of impact how you view physicians? Yeah. I love that you brought that up because that's, that's kind of a, a misapprehension that I think a lot of people have. I mean, they're fallible. They make mistakes. Um, they do the best they can, but they also, especially in primary care or family practice, they're dealing with so many different classes of medications and so many different ailments mm. that they're seeing mm. that they rely on the information provided to them to make good decisions. So 
like, which is kind of hard when you think about the fact that pharmaceutical sales reps are incentivized based on performance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whatever market share you can aggressively get through any means necessary, that's gonna impact a doctor's prescribing habits. Now, if that's your mom you're talking about as a patient, that should scare you a little bit. So mm -hmm. I definitely walked away thinking, you know what? I I appreciate the medical field, but I'm always gonna go for second opinions. Mm -hmm. I'm always gonna, mm -hmm. gonna do my own research and as much of that as I can, because they just have so much on their plate and I'd rather go in prepared. So that's my advice to anybody listening. How do you think about something like the opioid epi epidemic? Do you just assume oh, that's just a foul play kind of at hand? For sure, I, I think there's fault there's enough fault there to go to both the pharmaceutical industry and and the the prescribers as well. When you when you take a controlled substance and you allow you know every every Joe doctor to to prescribe it kind of unlimited, it's a little bit better now. Uh, but that has created a massive epidemic. I mean, that is a killer in our country. So yeah, it's been sad to see. So how long was your stint in pharmaceuticals? Seven years. I did seven years in pharmaceuticals, which was fantastic. I assume the money was good. What, what got you out of it? You know, the money was great. The money was so great that um, I lived on about a quarter of my income and plowed every other dollar into real estate investing starting in 2002. Beautiful. Um, so I bought my first condo. And then after six years, I had an additional 19 properties um, that I personally owned in Denver and in Park City and in Salt Lake City. And over time, you know, and I was doing all of these, mostly a short-term rental in a high-end condo market. Um, over time, I realized that, man, that that business is taking over. And it's also my occupancy rate was super high as compared to other other people in the industry. And so after a while, I thought I need to turn my attention to this fully. And so I did that in, in 2008, I, I shifted away from the pharmaceutical industry and just went full-time managing for other people for the first time for me, which was awesome. So I was able to, to add another 20 owners into my portfolio of short-term management and then built that business until the crash happened. This is such a common story <laughs> uh, folks owning some properties, having some success. Somebody asks, hey, can you manage mine? Slowly morphs into a business, which it speaks to the barriers to entry or the lack thereof for getting into property management. You brought up OA, 08. This is the lament of property management is that when an 08 happens, all of a sudden there's a lot more realtors that now happen to specialize in property management right. as well. So were you already kind of spun up? Were you already in motion in when, when 08 occurred? Yeah, I mean, I was, a, I was a broker in 05. So, and I had already been doing some other things in real estate from a flip perspective. So I, I felt confident that, that I could weather a storm. I, I read a lot during that time and I, I kind of anticipated a storm. I, I was able to, to consolidate my capital a bit and diversify in some ways. So I, I invested in oil in Texas during that time. I invested in, in gold. I invested in um, a dental clinic in Arizona, just trying to, trying to spread it out a little bit. But to be honest with you, what I did in half measure, I should have done in full. So if I could go back, because even the, even the 15 properties that remained in my portfolio, my personal portfolio, were decimated. Uh, when when kind of that business travel stopped and the vacation travel stopped in 08, 09, and 10, mm -hmm. that just destroyed my business. So the only properties that survived were the long-term rentals. And that was a very small percentage of, of what I was managing and what I owned. 
And did that create a bias from there towards long-term versus For sure. short-term? Definitely, I would say that. Uh, but I did, the business did come back. I mean, I, I, I kept as many of those properties going as I could. And when the market kind of, you know, started to, to recover a bit, um, I let out again with, with short-term management and built that uh, back up until 2013. What do you think the common thread is of folks that get in in the same way that you got in? Yeah. If you have some extra cash on hand, you can buy a boat, but if you're not minded, let's say at least within the the bucket of people that want working capital to do something that is meant to be accretive, what is the common thread for the folks that are drawn specifically towards real estate in your mind? Yeah. It's so funny that you bring that up because I think it's two things. It's It's number one, discipline. I mean, I lived at, you know, during a time when I was making a lot of money. And, and relatively young. Yeah. I lived um, as if I were in college still. I mean, I ate as if I were in college still and and extremely disciplined in a one bedroom, you know, condo just uh, that was just over $100,000. And I lived there for many, many years. Um, and just, so I think it takes discipline, but it also takes a willingness to risk. Um, it was so funny during that time because I had a lot of peers and a lot of people who were doing well not many of them pulled the trigger on investing and trying to build something bigger. I think it was, I always used to say, everyone talks about investing in real estate. If you wanna invest in real estate, you just, you just do it. You just pull the trigger and you have to be willing to accept the, the fact that you could lose all your money. At the end of the day though, it's just money. It's not really that important in, in the long you know, grand scheme of life. But I think you have to learn that lesson. You have to remove the emotion from your investment in order to be successful in it. If not, you'll you'll tie your your whole happiness up into this this major risk proposition and that just leads to misery. Well, that's an interesting stream of thought. You can segue off that in a million different directions, but I am curious to hear your take on downside protection. If a floor can be established, the way that you relate to your upside opportunities is a little bit different. If you know that the worst thing that can happen, that your fallback is safe housing and having food on the table, maybe you're willing to take a few more risks. How do you think about for an investor, kind of that, 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 that floor fallback and how it changes the psychology of the opportunities you explore from there? Yeah, that's a good question. So back, if you would have asked me that question 10 years ago, um, I would have said that I'm gonna leverage everything because if I lose everything, who cares? I have the skills and the knowledge to rebuild. And I think a lot of investors feel that way. However, you know, in the recent, I would say the last 10 years, I've kind of taken a position of, look, it is it is much more a secure blanket to have your primary residence paid off as quickly as possible. You can leverage your investments to the hilt. And I think that's a good strategy and that that helps you to, to kind of grow and, and use the power of money. And I know that that my thinking of, of the primary held in cash is maybe not as popular because not a great use of capital. But at the same time, there's just, there's power in the safety and especially for, for your family to know that, look, if all else fails, mm -hmm. if all my, my stock investments and my gold investments, if all that goes to zero, I still have a, a, a beautiful and safe place to live, then I don't know, I've changed in that mentality over the years. Yeah, it's Dave Ramsey-esque, so I wouldn't say it's out of fashion, but it certainly isn't mainstream. Probably frivolous consumption is the most mainstream that you could deal with right now in terms of common financial sense. When you think about kind of investing in, in this, this aspect of your life that's so tangentially related to property management, where does property management 
fit in in terms of the value prop. When we talk about the commodification of our industry, it's just about the pricing, we're just rent collectors, et cetera. How much of that is self-inflicted and how much of that is just inherent to the circumstance? <laughs> Such a funny question because again, like why didn't I ever hire a third-party manager? Mm -hmm. Because I have control issues, you know, and I thought that I could do it better and I thought that it was easy. And I think there's probably a lot of investors out there who feel that way and they don't see the value of, of third-party management. Only until I kind of got into the mix of, of the crash and beyond did I start to say, you know what, this is not worth the time that I'm investing in it. My time is better spent in other areas. And so then I started to see the value of that third party. Now, I, until I joined PMI, I fully agreed with the commoditization of that, of that industry. I mean, one property manager is as good as another is just send me my check, you know, and take care of the problems. I think that's starting to change. And we're seeing that, I think, across the industry as far as adding more value as a property manager. And that's one of the things that, that I've tried to bring to PMI. But yeah, I've definitely changed on that over the last... 10 years. What's your take on turnkey, which is kind of a related topic. Turnkey represents the consolidation of more of the value chain. It takes it from reactive and it, it opens up the possibility of getting in at the ground floor, lowering the bar to folks that have the capital, but bird dogging for a deal feels heavy. It's not as common. And when it's done, oftentimes it's done poorly because people are good at one of the three skills. They're good for at sure. construction. They know PM or they know how to raise capital, but only one. And therefore it just goes bad when the other the two are shaky. What's your take on turnkey? Yeah, so it's a great it's a great line of thinking to go down. The problem is that when you do that, which I think is is happening in the industry because of um, new money and you know money that's come into our space for the first time ever, we've never had you know in tw in 2011 Goldman Sachs never entered the single family space. Well, what happens when they do is that all of a sudden every Joe Schmo investor is like holy cow, I need to turn my attention to single family. And we've seen the results of that. And I think that goes to the kind of this turnkey idea. Uh, the problem is that the property managers as a whole, I don't think we're up to speed and ready to deliver that kind of service to the investor. And I think we're still struggling to play catch up a bit and trying to trying to understand and, and provide immense value. We know that in institutional investors don't value third-party property management. And we, we've heard that you know, many, many times. And so the challenge to property management is create enough value, be an asset to your investor rather than a drag on their on their balance sheet, uh, which is is pretty tough, I think, for most property management to overcome. So how do you crack the nut? I mean, that's a, that's a great yeah. concept, an asset, not a drag. That seems to describe pretty well the hurdle that folks would need to get over in order to really see value. You can tackle that on the consultative. I'm going to help you get more deals. I'm going to, I'm going to do some pocket listings, get you some inventory you wouldn't have access to. It could be on the maintenance side. It could be, we have bulk pricing. What feels like if you were going to stack rank the, the buckets and the levers mm -hmm. that a PM has available to actually make good on that premise, what would it be for you? Number one is return on the asset. So how many property managers in this country right now are having, let's say quarterly, or maybe even let's give them, a, give them a break every six months are having investment reviews with their clients. Very, very few that I know of. The ones that are doing it though, they're winning. They're, they're what I call fishing in their own pond. They're delivering value by giving a return, a noted return. Here is the return on your asset. Here's how much cash you had and here's how much you have now. Here's the equity that you've created through our management in that property. Would you like 
to now use that equity to, to move over here into this property. And by the way, here's a lending partner that I have, and I'll, I'll also be your agent on the deal. You know, there, that type of conversation is number one. Number two is maintenance. Um, I don't believe, so, you know, I'll give you an, an example of this. Why, why does a property manager's phone ring from that? You know, if you're, if you're mm -hmm. going to have somebody who's in that 65% category of people who self-manage, mm -hmm. you know why the phone rings to the property manager? Something bad happened. Something bad happened. Absolutely. That's why it's, that's why close rates are very high in property management, because if you're the advil to the problem, they're going to hire you. If you have the first meaningful conversation about mm -hmm. their property, nine times out of 10, you're going to get the business. But the point is that they don't pick up the phone until they feel pain. And so... So we're not providing any value to them prior to that until there's a maintenance issue and until there's a tenant that hasn't paid rent, you know, and, and needs to be evicted. That's that's when a property manager's phone number rings. So to overcome that and to to fight that, I think property managers have to figure out how to add value um, outside of that. Or there, that's one way. The other way is to remove the cost. You know, somehow to make it so easy for an investor to use a property manager that they just can't say no. The removal of friction is a common theme Absolutely. in customer sure. service. You think about delivering happiness to you see, talk a lot about customer delight. It's exciting, that's cool. I think uh, another angle on that is just the removal of friction. So instead of giving somebody a gift on their birthday, which, you know, love that, love that kind of direction, the removal of friction is an almost invisible unseen benefit? How do you make everything just kind of flow together better? The capacity that you act in at PMI, what is the the scope of the impact that you're trying to make for the, the franchisees that you yeah. work with? Yeah. So my title at, at PMI currently is the vice president of residential and commercial. And basically, you know, I oversee the portfolios and that means the offering of property management. So I, I'm responsible to build a better mousetrap and help our franchisees adapt it and then use it to make more money per door and provide more value to owners and client and tenants. And so that's kind of the, the purview that I have. We currently have 25,000 residential properties and about a thousand buildings, commercial buildings that we're managing. And so um, it's been a heck of a time trying to build value in that portfolio. So what does that break out to in terms of the average number of properties per franchisee yeah. ballpark. It's about 150. Okay. And yeah, we've had a lot of aggressive growth lately, so we're adding a ton of new franchisees with zero coming out of the gate. Sure. So they're at profile of around 150. They're kind of on that cusp of somewhere in between solo entrepreneurship, staring into the abyss, asking themselves, do I really want to build an organization? Yeah. There's no judgment. There's no right, wrong there. For many folks, solo entrepreneurship is a great way to have a nice income. And for other folks, it's bitterly disappointing because they want to build an organization, a management structure. I'm curious on the kind of disclosure that you give and the conversation that you feel is appropriate to help somebody navigate the types of decisions For and sure. sacrifices and skills that they're going to have to build to go from solopreneur, operator, do it all yourself, as opposed to building an organization. Yeah. So we, we segment it even, even more detailed than just solo entrepreneurs. So we have what's called a startup franchisee. And that's someone who's making anywhere from zero to $3,000 a month in recurring revenue. 
After that startup, you move into the solo, what we call the solo property manager, anywhere from $3,000 to $8,000 a month in recurring revenue. After that, you enter the growth phase, which is where most people get stuck after about two to three years. That's anywhere from $8,000 to $32,000 a month in revenue, in recurring revenue. And then after that is the strategic investor, the strategic property manager, $32,000 plus. So, you are absolutely correct that the the challenges that are facing a, a startup and a solo entrepreneur are extremely different than those facing a larger market. So we've tried to build programs that, that create a significant value at the right time for that person. So coming out of the gate, it's technician skills all the way. Um, it is how do you do property management? In our experience, that takes about six to eight months to learn the operational side of property management and start to be confident heavy focus during that time on sales skills and close rates and generating leads and all of those things. They're spending on average anywhere from $1,500 to $3,000 a month in lead generation. And uh, they should have a 50% plus close rate on the leads that are incoming during that time. Once they hit that next phase, the solo, it's time to think about okay, how do you scale? And you've got to prep for scale. So we move from teaching technician skills to teaching manager skills and, you know, and making that first hire and getting comfortable with that. Our new model includes a remote team member at that point as well, and, and kind of building out the, the training. Um, that's some, somewhere PMI has taken over kind of the, the training of every role in that person's property management company. So as they hire a leasing agent, as they hire a business development manager, as they hire XYZ, you know, we throw them into the training program, we teach them the technical skills of doing that role. Once you're able to kind of push through that difficult section of what we call a stuck in transition, you know, anyone who's in startup or solo, mm -hmm. into growth, we switch from, you know, we started in technician, we moved to, to manager skills, and then we actually start building entrepreneur skills. As a, as a someone in growth. Once you hit that $8,000 a month in, in revenue, all of a sudden you need to start stepping back from your business. You need to start setting up systems and processes that allow you to, to work on the business rather than in the business. And so we implement EOS with them at that, at that point. Um, we work through, you know, how that skill transfer works and who, how they should be aligning their company to grow. And, um, and then those that can succeed, make it into strategic, and, and then it's heavy EOS. It's a, it's a full EOS implementation at that point. How do you handle the segmentation of coaching? I get the brackets yeah. that you just described. You can handle segmentation for based on geography, based on top line revenue. At Profit Coach, we actually do based on net operating income, right. which is really interesting because you can have somebody managing 1,000 units and 100 units in the same group. <laughs> that gets a little awkward. How do you guys handle the assignment of coaches yeah. based on segmentation? Yeah, so it's it's geographical right now. And I th this is a pretty new model for us. I mean, we launched the, the franchise business coach model only about 18 months ago. And we have, we've hired now, um, I wanna say eight franchise business coaches that are, that are across different regions. We found that to be effective because in property management, you will see significant dif differences in Washington compared to, Cal to California, compared to Florida. And so it makes sense to have regionally based franchise business coaches. Now I will say this, there's a bit of a, of a segmentation that happens on both the region, but also on the size of business because the franchise business coaches that we're hiring, they are experienced in dealing with small to mid-sized companies. Uh, once they kind of reach into that strategic level, 
we're not providing as much value anymore. And so we've elevated the support and the coaching at that point to my level uh, for those companies. So for example, right now I've got between 25 and 35 companies that, that I work with mm. that are in that strategic group in residential management. Mm -hmm. And so we work on much higher level things. We have group calls together. You know, we start to, to attack some of the bigger issues that they're having in their companies. Let's talk about some of those bigger issues. You mentioned, you and I mentioned offline before we started, disruption and changes yeah. in the industry. There's outside capital coming in, there's changes, there's technology. Sometimes there can be like some whiplash for smaller operators for sure. that just want to be good at their job. They want to be great at property management and deliver a good service. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of um, of a buzzkill to have all these external factors coming in, including the eviction moratorium. There's a lot flying at the small independent property management company. What do you see changing in the landscape, and what do you see staying the same? Well, that's a that's a huge question. Um, I think at a high level, again, you have to you have to go back to understanding that the industry is changing very rapidly. So, I think I said this yesterday, but if the industry is changing faster than your company is you won't be in business much longer because you're not adjusting to what's coming and what's happening. So from a, from a high level, it's, it's a strength and a weakness to be at PMI in some ways because we do have so many new property managers, but at the same time, we have 340 companies on the ground who are gathering intel and gathering data of what's happening in their local markets. I think in the future though, we are seeing the investor profile change. Um, and, and you have the 35% the um, which when I say the 35%, I'm talking about of those properties that are managed, that are investment properties in the United States where the management is third party. The other 65%, the big blue ocean that we always talk about is self-managed investors. So if you look at technology and the, and the way single family residential has gone mainstream for investing, which segment do you think will grow? The segment who will hire a property manager or the segment who will self-manage? In my mind and in our strategy, it's the segment who will self-manage. And so if we want to stop fighting over the 35%, we need to find a way to get in front of and speak to the 65%. And we're, we're anticipating and gearing up for ways to add more value and think of new ways to provide property management to those people. One example of that could be um, a complete a la carte model where you're just saying, hey, you know what? You do your own management. We're here for when, for the eviction when you need us. We're here for the maintenance when you need us. And I feel like, again, I've hammered on those two earlier. Those are the two big areas of, of um, you know, value add that a an individual property or individual investor, they don't have access to the maintenance lists that a property manager does, a mm. vetted, insured, mm. you know, people that they have trust and confidence in, and they don't know how to handle evictions. So that's a unique, unique attribute that we have. So the question is, where do you find those 65%? Because they're not the ones calling you. So how do you find them? And that's that's kind of what we're brainstorming and what we're working through now is how to how to get in front of them. Where are they? Well, they're on their phones. They're in an app especially this next generation, they're using an app to manage their own property. What app are they using? Would it be possible to find a partnership with one of those apps to give them access, to be able to click on the, the PMI shield inside of that app, just in case they need a la carte management, just in case they need eviction or you know maintenance services. Hey, here's PMI's recommended maintenance vendor list. 
right? For that market. That's the huge advantage of having the boots on the ground that we do at PMI is that we're in so many markets now. We have this massive vendor mm -hmm. list. That's valuable information. You know, Randall, what's interesting is as you talk about this and you talk DIY, you're getting closer to the B2C side of the industry. Our world, it's B2B. It Work really is. PM, yeah. it is. Now on that B2C side, you have a lot of excitement and you have some vendors that sit on both sides. Yeah. I observe a little bit of ill will, dare I say, for some from some PMs that look at vendors that are serving both the professional property mm -hmm. manager and direct to consumer as opposed to only serving and enabling the professional property manager. Maybe they feel like there's a bit of, of an end run, but there is a lot of interest and a lot of money to be had in the direct to consumer model. Think about companies like Cozy, Avail, Tenant Cloud, all of these softwares, when you go to the homepage, they make you feel like, well, how hard is it? Yeah. I mean, you get the impression of like, well, they have all the tools, you know, it's a tool. That's, that's the job is basically a tool. And you're highlighting the places that clearly and obviously a tool cannot facilitate. A tool is never going to be able to evict someone without, you know, they're being risked to you. A tool is never going to be able to comprehensively deal with maintenance jobs. I think nuance is a big part of the work here. An example that comes to mind is I recall talking to a property manager that was working with a maintenance vendor. And I'd heard some negative feedback about the maintenance vendor. And they said, actually, I think they're great. What we realized is when we stopped giving them 100% of work orders and we started only giving them 90, 80% and clawing back that 10% where we could have reasonably, reasonably predicted in advance that that type of job and the associated complexity wasn't likely to go well, then we were really happy with what they did for the other 70%. Nuance is kind of the whole game, and that's what you're getting at here. A lot of these DIY folks can do many of the basics, but there are some, some situations that they can't. Now, is the point that you're making or is your premise here that there's money to be made in an a la carte model or that rather that a la carte can be a stair step to full service management? No, I think I think that's limited thinking because you're always going to have the people that do not want to pay for the property management. I was one myself. Right? I didn't even think of hiring a third-party property manager because it's not that hard. At least that's what I thought. Most of the time. Right. Most of the time it's not. So why would I, why would I hire a property manager third-party when, when it's easy most of the time? When it gets hard, I would love to have a property manager on speed dial who can help me with the problems that come up. Probably but, at a premium. Right. Absolutely. So I think there is, there is room. And a la carte is just one idea. It's just one way to think of a, of a new and different way to do business as a property manager. But I mean, I mean, this is going to be a huge comparison here and I don't want to like be too, too far and too ridiculous. But 10 years ago, if you had a room of 500 people and you asked them to raise their hand of who, who rode in a taxi in the past year, you would get very few hands up. And then you ask who rode in an Uber in the past year, you'd get every hand up. So the, the landscape is, has changed. It's not about, it's about something going mainstream and then reacting and responding rather than, so an entire market was created because someone was innovative in the space. And I think true innovation or true thinking about the business different can, can create another market for us if we can think that way. If you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> <laughs> find another way to get creative and work with the DIYs. Okay. I'm picking up what you're laying down, but like you said, a million different ways to skin a cat. Let's hone in on the tech piece, which is tied in, right? All of this, 
these hairy tasks, maintenance being a great example, there is a lot of money and a lot of tech being thrown sure. at maintenance with the hope of making that go away. What technology plays are of interest to you? What do you see that's exciting? What are you What are you willing to lean on? There's novelty, and then there's something you're willing to put some weight on, and that's when things get real. Yeah, and we're struggling with that, to be quite honest with you. I mean, we have, I think I mentioned this, but we have a tech stack that is 14 deep right now. 14 different tech providers. I mean, that is way too many to, to do that. And we're doing that to try to create a unique experience in property management. But the reality is that, you know, everyone is trying to create that, that same experience. And we're all kind of like, you know, running together as a pack. I think to truly get out in front, there's gonna have to be some new piece of disruptive technology. And I don't know what that looks like, but I would like to be a part of it. Um, and so I would like to put it out there, you know, that, hey, we're, we are open to exploring and looking at new ways of doing business. Um, anyone who's listening, reach out to us. We're thinking about these things all the time. And so, um, yeah, I mean, on the maintenance side specifically, it's a big struggle, right? It seems, it seems like it should be easy to tie all of that together, all of the communication, all of the billing, you know, everything all together into one place. And yet it takes, what, four vendors, four technology pieces to do that right. I mean, that's unbelievable. So we, I feel that same way about leasing. I feel that same way about screening. I mean, everything is just way over the top complex. It's the reason why we, we went to a workflow automation to try to unify those things and create consistency in the model. But even within the workflow steps, so let's say in leasing, all right, I'll take maintenance, I'll stay in maintenance. In maintenance, you have, I think we have a workflow process that is 37 steps and involves four different vendors just to create that experience. That's that's just too much for me. Well, that's interesting. I almost kind of, I hear the plea. You're, you're kind of like putting it out to the, to the <laughs> universe. Let someone bring this and deliver. Well, you know, we're not a technology company. I know a lot of a lot of bigger and property management say, we are a, we are a technology, we're a property technology company. We're not. We're at PMI. We're a services business. We're trying Tech to create, enabled service business. right. We're trying to get a great customer experience, and we're trying to create assets. We're trying to do the two cores of property mm. management in mm. our minds. Number one, maximize owner revenue. Number two, preserve the asset. That is our two goals at PMI. Um, and so, <laughs> nowhere in there is create a technology platform that we can then I don't know do what with or create it. Like there are smarter people than me who are working on that every day. So as a discriminating consumer, a bit of a, a connoisseur, if you will, of tech in this space, I see that you're not just jumping on the next bandwagon. No. What is your experience of what it's like working with smaller players where there's more flexibility at the scale that you're at? You can put a little weight on that, get yeah. a little movement, get a little favor treatment, as opposed to the other end of the spectrum, some of the larger players where dare I say, even at your scale, there's probably some likelihood in which it may feel like being a tech on a dog's back and there's just not a whole lot of ability to, to turn the ship. And I don't like saying that, but that is what I make up or kind of how I experience some of the really large vendors in multiple verticals. Yeah. And furthermore, the norms in this industry are unique. I got to say, the norms are unique. There is some indulgence around a premise, like for example, I could give you access to your data, but I don't have to. <laughs> that's right. There's no pressure. Yeah. You know, nobody else is going to do it. That's you. That's a unique characteristic and feature of this industry, which I think most people don't love. What's your experience working with smaller and larger vendors, pros and cons? Yeah. Yeah. So 
You make a great point because I think for the first time, PMI is starting to get a little bit of looks from some of the bigger providers of tech in the multifamily space. I'll give you an example of that with one vendor that has now entered into a relationship with us currently, and that's Conservice, which is a utility billing company, typically only in the multifamily space. And you wanna talk about a tick on a dog's back, Graystar has what, 800,000 properties that they're managing, we're at 25,000. Right, we are we are nothing compared to them, but it, it has been nice to start to attract some of the services that have been provided for years and years on the multifamily side are just now making their way into single family, which blows my mind. But it's been extremely frustrating on the flip side, addressing what you brought up around access to data. For example, how do you run a business without a good BI tool? You can't, especially not a, not a company that is larger than five people. You need business intelligence and try integrating that with any of the current options that are on the market today for property management and you just run into a brick wall. I mean, we crashed the servers. PMI crashed the servers of one of the biggest players on the single family software side because of just trying to get reports out, mm. right? We we had a we didn't realize this, but we had stacked, you know, we couldn't couldn't API in, couldn't build that right? So we had to export reports. A steady stream. Every night, yeah. yeah. And so um, unbeknownst to us, the first time it was run, completely shut down everything for 12 hours at that company. And that is just like, all we want is our data. All we want to do is segment our data and understand what's happening and what, is, what are our, our vacant days across the franchise and what's our revenue per door. All the basics that you need to run a property management company, we couldn't even get out. I mean, it was ridiculous. So it's incredibly frustrating. And it's one of the reasons why I don't feel like this current crop of software companies that we talk about all the time are the solution for the future of property management core software. I'm not talking about some of these, you know, maintenance vendors and other people who I do believe are very innovative in the space. I'm talking about the core people that you hear about in property management software. We need to level up. We need a new player. We need new blood. We need someone who thinks differently about the space. And I'm sure there's many vendors thinking right now, he's talking about me, I hope. <laughs> well, this is me handing you a magic wand. If you're gonna wave the magic wand broadly, what would you like to see if there was a big shift and change in the technological technological landscape? Is it open APIs, data portability? Is it features that don't exist? Is it consolidation where instead of 14, it's one vendor? What is it? Yeah, yes, yes, and yes, I think. You have to have consolidation of some kind, but you also still have to have flexibility because there are gonna be one-off one -off pieces of data that you want. So absolutely, a wide open API and a commitment to build a commitment to build for, for players who are in the single family space. That's what it's gonna take, I think, for someone to break through. And there are some up and coming players in that space that, that are very interesting. And so we're kind of excited to explore those, those potential opportunities for us. Love talking tech, it's in my DNA. I also love talking people, sometimes even more so. Tell me what the lessons you've learned, what's it look like as a people manager? You obviously have that people bent, you've been in sales previously. I like the phrase that the strength of the owner is the weakness of the business. That's a poundism for my partner, Jeremy, former partner, Jeremy. And it basically just means that the thing that you're really good at and that you intuit oftentimes is harder to transfer because you're just good at it. You're not like thinking about it, you just do it well. What skills have you been strong at that you've really had to flex up to learn how to train and, and communicate didn'tically to others? That is, a, that is a very tough question because 
it's funny. A lot of people look at PMI and they think, oh my gosh, 25,000 properties. That's so many properties. But the reality is on the franchisor side, you know, our interest in a franchisee's business is to grow and support them. We are not managing from corporate, from Utah, 25,000 doors. I'm managing 340 or 350 franchises and trying to inspire and lead them and, and get a few pennies on each dollar that they make, right? So that is the business that I'm in. So when you talk about, you know, big company versus small company, and that's where I go to on, on kind of leading into that strength and weakness discussion, it has been a challenge for us to transfer the strengths at our company and create um, people who also exhibit those and, and can build. So for example, um, I've always loved teaching. I'm a great teacher, um, which has boded well for the early stages of PMI's growth. But now we're struggling because the education is now, you know, five, six years old and we have, I, I, I don't have the time or the ability to go back and redo it. And so it's, it's just, a struggle. So I feel I feel the pain in your statement. We also have the same thing with our CEO, Steve Hart. Um, just an incredible visionary, still doing the sales for each each franchise, which may surprise people, right? He's still the one who is interviewing each new candidate and talking them through their business plan and, and kind of giving them a vision of where they could be. And I think that's in some ways limited our ability to scale. Um, we need, you know, we need to be thinking about bigger partnerships and, and bigger things. And I, so I, that really resonates with me on that, on the strength and weakness side. I'm figuring it out one day at a time. For just, sure. Just like you, brother. Yeah. In terms of your interests outside of property management, if you weren't doing property management, this whole thing went away, what, what do you think you'd be doing? <laughs> you know, I think about that often. Um, I get a lot of satisfaction from coaching, uh, from, from teaching. But I also, um, I also love building. I love being an entrepreneur. It's, it's the reason why I've stayed at PMI. I mean, I was, I was on my own for a lot of years before rejoining the corporate world, selling off my businesses in 2013 and then, and then joining PMI. Um, and so I was worried that I would lose kind of that entrepreneurial opportunity. It's been quite the opposite. Being able to work with individual companies and help them succeed, help build them up as entrepreneurs and, and transfer that skill to them has really buoyed me. So if I could find another job where I was still able to transfer knowledge and to, to teach, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, like I think the math teacher is still inside of me. I really do. Like I, I, I it's funny when I, in 2013, when I did sell my, sell my businesses, I was like looking around trying to decide what to do. I applied for a high school teaching position uh, before I found the opportunity at PMI. Wow. So that, that was, I, I'm, I'm kind of always drawn to that, that level, just that, that teacher student interaction, the light that comes on when you see someone learn something, it's really cool. I just love it. Tell me one story about one franchisee where you had the pleasure of seeing and facilitating a huge amount of growth. Yeah. There are so many because all types buy a franchise. And you know, you have to be careful when you're screening potential franchisees that you don't prejudge them. I'll give you an example. I mean, we we sold a franchise to someone in Texas to an older gentleman, a gentleman who had had a career, you know, and so I'm thinking the hustle and bustle of what it takes to build a new business. I'm not sure if this guy is going to be able to do it. Um, you know, and he struggled out of the gate. So we still 
we still sell the franchise to him because of his passion and his dream of doing this, even at an advanced age. But um, watching him struggle was was extremely tough. I mean, you, I, I build such a close relationship with these people, and I, I know you understand that from like a coaching perspective, mm-hmm. what that means. Uh, so when you see them struggle and fail, which he did for a full year, um, he, you know, I think he had seven properties after one year, and and I was like had so many tough conversations with him about, is this really what you wanna do? And at the end of the day, he said, Randall, I poured my savings into this. Mm. It's this or nothing. And so those calls are, you know, they wake you up and, and you think, okay, what are we gonna do next? What mm-hmm. is the next thing we're, mm-hmm. gonna, we're gonna work on together? He started to get some run. He started to, to change the way he was talking. He brought the passion and the desperation of someone who needed to make it work. Mm. And he conveyed that mm. to his clients. And it was amazing. It was like, it was like a, something shifted in him. There was no more second guessing his pitch. He was on the money every time. Mm. I am the best property manager in this market for you and here's why. And this is a guy who is the softest hearted guy. You would never believe that he could do that, but he came out, he found the animal inside of him mm. and he grew to 70 properties in I think three or four months, mm. just hand over fist. And we're talking organic. Like this was not like massive portfolios. This guy was all of the hustle, all of the hard work mm. paid off. And you know, having that phone call at the end of that, which he's now, up over 150 properties, I think, but having the phone call where he's just yelling and yahooing and thinking, you know, and just this this old Southern guy just going off about how amazing his journey has been. Um, and that's why, why I get up every day. That's what we do. It's cool, it feels good. Man, I love that story. Yeah. I can relate to needing the stimulation of having my back against the wall at yeah. times in order to stay engaged. You know, I don't know if people who buy a franchise understand that that is, even though it's a it's a quote unquote business in a box, the the entrepreneurship, the sense of building it yourself is still there. This is not a McDonald's where you're gonna come in and, and have clients from day one. You've got to hustle. Your back needs to be against the wall. You need to paint yourself into a corner, which is terrifying for almost everybody, all right? It was terrifying for me. Um, I kept having these conversations. I'll never forget early on in my business. Sorry for another another uh, quick story, but um, I, you know, my business had kind of stagnated a bit, and I and I was and I didn't know what to do about it. I hadn't really made the shift to like bringing in additional partners or additional employees. I had kind of this mental block of giving up control or maybe just not having enough confidence in myself to mm-hmm. believe that anyone else would would see my vision. So. I, I said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go to my office and I'm gonna lock myself in and I'm not gonna come out until I know what to do next in my business. And I stayed in that office for the next 38 hours of my life, mm-hmm. um, just working through and mapping and, and trying to understand what to do next. It was a very difficult time. Um, you know, I had, I had a young kid at home. I, I didn't know if this was, was gonna work. Um, but I came out of there with a new constitution, if you will, with a new plan. Um, one that, you know, immediately took impact, which I was, which again, floored me. I'm like, I kind of felt like this was a willpower problem. Mm. This was just, mm. you know, I needed to be in that corner. I needed to lock myself in that room until I could, you know, and quite honestly, I could face my wife 
and my daughter mm. and, and say, it's okay. We're gonna be just fine. Mm. I've got a plan, I'm working it. You know? mm. That's beautiful. Thank you for that share, man. <laughs> my experience is that sales is about the transference of certainty. If I don't believe it, I can't expect you to believe it. Mm. That clarity you can come in and out of can be helped or hindered depending on your proximity to your goals. There's a, a pattern of goal achievement. And then for a moment, you're kind of lost. Like I wasn't thinking necessarily all the way through. I had this big goal. It felt aspirational. And then I hit it. Oh crap. What now? <laughs> what now? And you can have some lostness in that, you know, you, it's time to reward myself and you indulge a bit. That hard edge of committing yourself to clarity is really, really important. Having your back against the wall is I think the way that you put it. And that I think is a good segue to where we could wrap up talking about the time that your back was against the wall, as was mine in the Grand Canyon together. Yeah. That was a hell of an adventure. Didn't fully know what I was getting into. Had a pretty good idea, but the idea and the experience can be pretty, pretty divergent. What was your, give me your take, man. What was your experience? What were some highlights and lowlights from that, oh, man. that experience in the can Grand Canyon together? Well, I'll tell you this. I, I followed the preparation as best I could. I generally followed the recommendations from the pros. I bought the things that I needed to buy um, and I trained the way that I was supposed to. Having said all of that, I would not have made it through the canyon without you, without assistance and help from my friends and from people who had been there before or people that I could lean on like you who inspired me to continue going on the trail. And that's, that's something I just wanna note. In spite of the preparation, in spite of all I did, I would have failed without adjustments along the way, mm. which I made an adjustment halfway through the day of, of my, my salt intake. Mm. I, hadn't, I hadn't thought that I really needed the salt pills, right? I had, I had food that had the right mix, I thought, which by the way, ran out 12 hours into the hike. And so, um, you know, and, and it's kind of been a lesson for me. Um, of the power of, of a group, the power, you know, the old, the old African saying of mm -hmm. you, you know, you go faster alone, but if you want to go far, you go together. And I feel like on that, on that trip, that, that lesson was, was made crystal clear to me. But again, I do want to call you out in particular because I didn't, I didn't know you very well. Mm -hmm. I'd seen you speak on stage several times. I've seen you teach. And so to see you in, in a different environment uh, and to watch your, you know, we had a, we had a joke. I, I hope you've mentioned it on the show before, but like one step at a time, that was your mantra for mm. the day. You, mm. Every time somebody asked you, cause you're literally limping along. I mean, literally, I think halfway through the day. My feet got shredded yeah. by halfway through, yeah. yeah. Limping along and everyone is checking in with you. Hey Jordan, how you doing, man? How, how's it going? Jordan's over there one step at a time. I'm doing great one step at a time. And it was the positivity. It was inspiring, man. You set the mm. pace for us for the last, what, six hours of the, of the adventure mm. and uh, would not have been able to do it without, uh, without that. So that was a big lesson for me. No matter how much you prepare, no matter mm. what you do, mm. you will fail without mm. adjustments on the trail mm. and without people to help you along the way. Man, I love that share and it's such a good inverse fit for mine. This is very yin and yang. My share is, is somewhat the opposite. My share was, I was relying on will 100% <laughs> 
of the time. I felt undertrained. I felt under-equipped. I, uh, Randall, it was a kind of a sick joke at the very, very end when I turned on my headlamp. And I had this moment of thinking, I am the worst kind of consumer that, that pays for something cheap thinking I'm saving money. Because I turned on a 99-cent LED <laughs> headlamp that I bought from Walmart the night before thinking, thinking... <laughs> I'm no schlub. I'm going to finish before nightfall. I won't need this. And when I turned it on, Randall, that got me about six inches of visibility. <laughs> I remember. In front of my face. I remember. We had to position somebody <laughs> yeah. who had a brighter light right behind you. <laughs> exactly. So I just, my level of prep ahead of time was inadequate. And that was a great reflection. That was, that was overconfidence. That was, you know, something along the lines of like, I'm young. I can do it. I, I I have, I can lean on my will. And boy, that was a great reflection. Cause you know what? I enjoy leaning on my will. My will is strong, but that didn't justify the lack of preparation. And I felt some guilt cause I was with other people that I asked to come. And so there was a reflection there mm -hmm. for me mm -hmm. of, did I, did I prepare? Did I put in the work in advance to be as prepared as I could have? And the answer was no. Mm. That was a great lesson and a profound reflection for me. So yes, we finished together. We made it. Uh, and boy, what a what a blessing and a unique introspective moment to be with professional people yep. in a quasi-professional setting in a moment and an experience that veered about as far as you can off of a professional roadmap. I was going to say it got real personal real fast. Real quick. Yep, it did, especially when one of our one of our members of the hike went down halfway through. Yep. And, you know, had to be rehydrated, re, you know, invigorated with salt, with carbs. I mean, the guy struggled, struggled. And if not for the people on that hike, I honestly believe that that he would not have made it out. It's that's also sobering, but yeah, I agree going into that personal place real fast and it's cool to see, you know, people's personality, people's determination and mm. people's spirit shine through in, in a situation like that. I was really blessed to see Tony's leadership Agreed. and to see the, we, the way that he stepped up and, and was able to, to step in there. That was another aspect of the reflection. Yeah. I made it. I stayed with our group. What was it, about six people yep. that was in our squad out of a total of, of 20 something. The, the last group that you're referring to, I didn't have the stamina to go back there and either. drag somebody else out of the canyon. That's a pretty serious feeling, you know? You it go is. into a casual social interaction and now you have the possibility that something profoundly bad, potentially including death, could happen and you're not going to be able to help that person because of your own physical limitations. That's a mind trip. In <laughs> yeah, what other circumstance sure. could you witness something that crazy and horrible happening to someone and walk away? Yep. Rare. Rare. We, the question came up the other day, would you do it again? For both of us, the answer was yes. And I think if I reflect on why, it's just such a unique experience to yeah. be in that kind of situation. And you get to you get to test yourself. And I think that's what it come, came down to for me. It was just that that test of what's in you. Yeah. So it's a mix of the achievement of, of what mm -hmm. we did. But I think there's also this like, this humbling nature, which, you, which you're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's not just, I mean, it's also the beauty of the hike and and the smallness that we are in this Grand Canyon, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, pun intended. But um, also just you know, watch knowing that I couldn't have helped, mm. knowing that I didn't have the strength to go back, and 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 watching those guys not just go back and commit fully. 
but also turn around two hours later mm. and do it the other direction the mm -hmm. next morning mm -hmm. when I can barely walk. Mm. It was just, it was an inspirational and, and incredible and quite frankly, humbling to an ex-athlete who, you know, thought pretty highly of his physical <laughs> capability. <laughs> yeah, what a trip, man. Well, you know, I think it speaks to some of the just great people elements of being in this industry. Yeah. I haven't been in other industries. You know, you mentioned being in pharmaceutical sales. I'm sure that's great too. Wouldn't know. This is the industry that I really have the most context on. And I choose to believe that it's special in that way, that there's this depth of relationship that is far beyond transactional. And um, that really adds a lot of, a lot of depth to the personal experience of being in it. Yeah. In my experience, it is different. It is unique. And I don't know if it's kind of this brothers and sisters in arms, like in the trenches. I don't know if it's that, or if it's just I, you know, I, I have I haven't figured it out yet, but I agree that there is something unique. People like Tony and others um, who share and lead and inspire are everywhere in this industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think that I can that I've come across another industry full of high integrity people, mm. full mm -hmm. of high integrity people mm. um, like this one. It's been amazing. Well, aren't we blessed, man? I'm we grateful are. to be in this industry and I'm grateful for people like you that want to give back. I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. As we wrap up, final question for you, Randall, what is one cause that you find worthy and why? That is a powerful question. Um, for me, the biggest driver in my life is family. Um, I, I've, Am, am just a big believer in that no matter what success or failure you have outside of the home, nothing can compensate for failure within the walls of your home. And so, uh, especially children, for me, uh, you know, having the ability to spend time right now with my kids is so crucial. Mm. Um, every day is should be a, a gift and a treasure and we need to spend as much time with them as possible. I know that's, it's not, you know, and when you look at like children generally, um, they just have a, a soft place in my heart. So anytime I see children struggling or um, hurt or fighting something, that tugs me, man. That's that's where my heart is. I just, I love the kids. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you for that share, man. Yeah. We'll hey, leave it there. Thank you. You, you are an inspiration and I appreciate uh, what you have brought to our industry. So thank you. Thanks for being one of those high integrity people that I look up to. It's a pleasure. Until next time. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me, send me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.